What's up guys, Michael Zakond, host of the Our Future podcast here, and today we listen to Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BMY Mellon, one of the world's oldest banks. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton back in 1784. We can't wait to dive into how Wall Street is thinking about our new COVID economy. Alicia's always on CNBC, she's on CNN, she's talking to the world on the TV, and now she's joining us on the pod. So Alicia, let's let's hop in the time machine. Let's go back to the late 1700s when okay. Alexander Hamilton founded your bank, which is crazy. Yay! Yes. Crazy. Um, I'm so honored, by the way. He championed the concept of central banking and the Fed is currently under the spotlight. The backbone of the American economy is under the spotlight more than ever to get us out of this crisis. What's your opinion on what the Fed is doing right now to maintain liquidity? Let me just say I'm a huge fan of Jay Powell, who's the chair of the Federal Reserve. Jay Powell also has an interesting background, Michael. I'll remind you that he's not an economist. He's not a macroeconomist, and he's not from academia. He came from markets, and he came from a world of markets and then worked at the Federal Reserve. So I'll just say that he has a very broad background, and I think that's part of the reason that he was the right person in the right seat at the right time to understand that what the Fed needed to do is to give liquidity to credit markets because otherwise the economic outcome was going to be a lot worse. If you can't trade the safest asset class in the world, which are US treasuries, and you couldn't because it was all stuck up, it was like a clogged drain, a clogged pipe, you know, then you can't trade anything. And we were looking at a wider systemic crash. So I think the Fed's doing a remarkable job. I mean, the speed here is amazing. And they were determined not to repeat the mistakes of 2008 and 2009, where it really took a while to get these programs going. The speed is dizzying, but so is the magnitude of money creation. Are we going to lose control of the national debt? And, and what does that mean for the average American going forward? This is the big question. And again, this is where your background in many different areas, you know, if you have range, this is where you start thinking about broader implications. I am concerned about social unrest. I am concerned about returns going forward and asset classes being much lower because we're going to have an enormous amount of debt. I don't know if we'll get another $3 trillion fiscal package. I think there will be another fiscal package, probably in the $1.5 to $2 trillion on top of the other $3 trillion. We're talking about 25% of U.S. GDP. That's unheard of. During the, the financial crisis of 2008, we only got 5% of US GDP. It has to be paid for in some way. Most people feel that the amount of spending we're going to do will lead to a, not great outcomes going forward, but not to do it leads to worse outcomes in the short term. And in a sense, the US has no choice, but it has to be paid for. So take your pick. We're either going to print money or we're going to tax, 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 tax. And neither of those things really suggest great returns for assets going forward. So let's talk about that whole average American thing. Consumer price inflation, is that on the horizon? You know, the staple goods becoming more expensive. There's a supply shock at play. So you see the su supply shock in play already, because if you look at CPI from a couple of days ago, you saw what happened with food prices. So food prices have gone up remarkably. And there's your supply shock. We know that there have been issues in meat processing, pork, and actually I'm hearing in chicken also we're going to have problems. So that is a factor. I think in the short term, meaning in the next two years, the real issue is the demand shock. And demand shock leads to disinflation. 
not deflation, but disinflation, very slow inflation. So right now, the two are at odds with each other. I do think over time, though, that with all this liquidity, rock low interest rates, I don't see the Fed raising rates anytime in my lifetime, frankly. Let's talk about some of the cars going forward as well. Um, you know, America has been swept by kind of nationalist fervor, and, and so is the rest of the world, you know? Is this an inflection point of sorts where we really try to focus on bringing jobs back to American soil? We kind of cancel this globalization story um, that, that we've had at play. Um, what, what does that mean for the economy when countries start to shore up a little bit after this and, and, and during this? Yeah, look, I mean, this is being the, the, the deglobalization story is being played through the supply chain story. So one of the reasons the U.S. had trouble getting PPE, which is the personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, is that the supply chains were far flung over the world. And you probably already know that our active pharmaceutical ingredients, you know, the things that drug companies use to make pharmaceuticals, are also far flung across the world. And that has become a national security issue. And so... In those particular industries, we really do see supply chains coming back home. It's not going to be spoken in the sense of jobs, but I think both the Democrats and Republicans understand that for the U.S. to be prepared for the next pandemic, that those kinds of supply chains need to come home. The, the just-time supply chain that the U.S. economy has run on in the last 30 years and really gaining steam, that, that story has been broken. And I think it's true everywhere in the world. And with that, will become will come less trade. And with that, will also become a more pressure on growth rates. So you're having enormous debt pressuring growth rates. You're having taxing pressuring growth rates, and you're having the deglobalization pressuring growth rates as well. So let's unpack another story here, and it's that billionaires have gotten four hundred billion dollars richer during this pandemic, and forty million Americans have filed for unemployment. You know, we've been seeing a a crazy wealth gap for some time, not just not just before coronavirus rocked the world, but before. Is yeah. that is that troubling you, that data there? Look, I think this goes along with the fear over social unrest. And I think uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell really was very eloquent about it when he talked about the, you know, the 40 percent of workers who earn under forty thousand dollars a year going on the unemployment roll things that the Fed really tried to do is reach into different communities, communities of color and different socioeconomic communities to understand what the economics look like on the ground. What does the job market look on the ground? I, I fear for that. And I fear for that. And I think the Congress was aware of that. And I want to give a shout out to Congress as well. Gets a bum rap. But I will say this, you know, the original stimulus plan was very, very fast. You know, there was no politicking in this. P, uh, the, the PPP, protecting the payrolls, was meant to address that issue to keep people getting paid and working. And the extra unemployment insurance of $600 a week, and by the way, greater than 50% of unemployed workers are now getting more money unemployed than they were working. Not a great incentive for work, but it is there. Is meant to address the kind of issues you're talking about so people can feel that they're not desperate. In addition, there were the direct payments from the IRS. And we actually heard through Target and Walmart and Home Depot that they saw the spending come in as people got the checks. So what Congress did was to try to address the inequality 
of where the hit was coming from. You know, in the end, white collar workers, most people still have their jobs. It's the people who work for these small and medium sized businesses. And that's why I'm really concerned in the long run for the social unrest and for really um, divisions in the country. We certainly have a new normal on our hands. Planes unfilled, concert halls will be deserted for some time, uh, stadiums will, will not be able to be filled. I mean, I just interviewed uh, an executive at the NFL and he was telling me about what they're planning and there's just a new normal on our hands. So I, I, I wanna unpack that new normal from your perspective. And what is that new normal, Alicia? Well, you know, Michael, I'm sitting here on Madison on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, the epicenter of the global pandemic. And let me tell you, it has not been so pleasant. And part of that involves getting into an elevator every day. Um, I, I can't imagine people going on the subway again. Dense areas and dense social activities are going to suffer in the short term. And I think there's no way around it. I will say this, I have great faith in America's pharmaceutical and biotech companies. There are over 300 trials throwing throwing science at this thing on the vaccine and the treatment side, I have really a lot of confidence that something's gonna hit. I don't know when, but I have faith in America's pharmaceutical companies. You know, the way that AIDS, AIDS was a nasty virus and people died from AIDS. Well, American pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies made AIDS something you live with. This too will be something that people live with. It just won't be tomorrow. And so the gap, that bridge between where we are today and where we have treatment, we're not going to have full demand back in the economy. You just can't. But I feel like the market's pricing that in. I mean, I, I feel like one thing for people outside of finance is this crazy disc, like they don't understand this disconnect between reality and what the markets are doing. Are the markets like, are they thinking about that? Are they channeling the energy to that bridge in 2021 where so the economy could come back? when there's a vaccine on the table? So like, look, a couple of things here. The market pretty much is ignoring what's happening during the journey and it's just getting to the destination. And ultimately, you know, equities are forward looking and price and discount forward returns. So to the extent that we know we're in the worst economy the country has seen since the Great Depression, very hard to get worse than the worst. So every incremental data you know, release is going to be incrementally better and markets tend to tee off that. But we should say that the S&P is not the US economy. So 20% of the S&P are five large cap tech stocks and 75% of the, that 33% return from March 23rd has been driven by those five stocks. So the S&P is not the U.S. economy, and the, those companies that actually come out stronger at the, as a result of this are doing well, but the cyclicals are doing terrible. If you look at utilities, financials, industrials, insurance companies, these companies are doing terribly. It's just that the index level is masking how bad it is because it's dominated by large cap tech. You embody Wall Street more than most. I mean, you are the point of, you're the chief strategist to BNY Mellon. You go up there on TV and, and it's you, right? You are the link between this multinational institution and you know uh, how other people are interacting with the ideas being espoused at that institution. I wanna know how you deal with the pressure and how you absorb that responsibility of representing one of the oldest and most respected and historic banks in the world. 
You know, that is a great question. Nobody ever asks that question. I'll, I'll say this, I think the academic background and the sense that it doesn't matter what question I get asked, I can tap into something that I learned somewhere along the way. You know, in the end, experience matters and the journey actually does matter. So I kind of relax myself by thinking, oh, you know, I know what's going on in Europe. I know what's going on with politics. I know what's going on with trade. I know what's going on with markets. So it's all going to be okay. But there is a lot of stress. And I'll tell you, to be honest, when I first started doing this, which was only a couple of years ago, you know, I didn't grow up doing this. I only started a couple of years ago. I would get really nervous stomach beforehand, you know, <laughs> I got nervous. Um, but, you know, like anything else, you keep on doing it, you do it, and it turns out okay. You know, a lot of kids my age have big dreams of going into high finance and, and being in a position like yours one day. Uh, a lot of them are in business school. A lot of them are studying economics. Why should they be taking classes in public policy? Why should they be looking into political science and studying history when they want to go into this finance field? Is that something you recommend? I do recommend it. I recommend in a funny way, people often who go into finance are like on the speedy track and they want to get there fast and they want to be the next Mark Lazary and they you know, want to start their own fund and they want to be there. And that's all great. The interesting thing about Wall Street, if you look at the great investors, they majored in English. They majored in history. It's very rare that the legendary investors actually majored in finance and then went to business school. It's not that there aren't people who have done that, yes, but all kinds of backgrounds are really, really welcome. And just to talk about public policy for a second, look at the time we're living in. We're living in a pandemic and we're living in a time when you have to balance health concerns with the economic consequences of dealing with the virus in a certain way. And in the end, this goes beyond finance and it goes beyond economics. It also got, goes beyond health. And you really have to have a holistic view of what's the best policy for the moment we're in. There are trade-offs. Economics teaches you to think about trade-offs. But when you study history and sociology and government, you begin to think a little broader as well. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon. It was a great conversation. She had some amazing insights for the next generation of leaders and some great perspective on how Wall Street is viewing this new COVID economy. I just wanna say, I hope everybody is staying inside. Everybody is staying safe. We're living through these crazy, unprecedented times. And I hope that listening to a business podcast can help you keep your mind off some of the other pressures that might be around right now. Stay frosty, stay safe, let's get it.